Hey, here comes another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman. This week, we are tempted, you know, to pinch ourselves to make sure we're not in a dream where FC Bayern München is not the best team in the Bundesliga. With me, just out of pinching distance over in Old Blighty, is Terry DeFellin. You're fully conscious over there, aren't you, T? You're not in a dream. No, I'm not in a dream, not at this point. I mean, I was in a dreamlike state, I think, yesterday. But no, I am here, I'm real, and so is this thing, Matt. It's real. Nice, nice. Speaking of sleep cycles, are you planning to uh, stay up late for the Super Bowl this evening by any chance? I know that that's sort of a thing that some folks over in Europe do, but I, I only managed to do sometimes when I lived over there. <laughs> My wife and I have a tradition of staying up for the Super Bowl. We do, and we do it every year, and we take a day off the next day. Sadly, <laughs> I have an early morning appointment tomorrow morning, and also in recent times, we've not made it as far as the halftime show. So as we've got older, alas. But yes, the spirit is definitely willing, albeit the flesh is oh so weak. But go Niners. Go Niners is all I can say. Okay. We'll have to check in with Nick in the coming days. I know he, he's called into work on fairly late notice, which is why he is not here with us. But, you know, maybe the break room at uh, at his workplace will show him a little of the, the Usher halftime show Ooh, or what is, have you. Is that how it is? It is. It is, which is mm. it's not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah. 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 Right. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll be talking the foosball in earnest. But, you know, please do get in touch with us anytime you like. Just send us an email, podcast at TalkingBoosball.com. We love the good reviews on Apple Podcasts and all the other platforms. If you really want to help keep the show afloat, give us a little bit of money over on Patreon. we got tons of great timeless content that takes in all six decades of Bundesliga history for just, uh, you know, as little as a few dollars a month. Let's get started with the podcast in earnest. Yeah, we here at Talking Foosball, we've had a bit of a running joke over the last several years, really. A little bit at Terry's beloved Borussia Dortmund's expense that, you know, whenever the Bundesliga tries to build up some hype around a certain game they like to call Der Klassiker, things get a bit pear-shaped that, you know, the hype often turns into a puff of smoke. So, I gotta say, after all those lopsided results in Bayern's favor in that particular fixture, it gave me a little bit of an alarm that uh, the brand boffins over at uh, Bundesliga HQ had cooked up the name The Big One for this game. Maybe that's just a play on the fact that it's happening at the same weekend as the Super Bowl, which in at least United States brand purposes always has to be called the big game because they're extremely litigious that any brand that uses the name of their game is in the crosshairs. So I actually didn't even say the name of the game just a moment ago. It was it was a mistake on my part. Anyway, the big one, Bayer Leverkusen versus Bayern München. I thought this one paid off big time. I mean, if anything, maybe I should have been worried <laughs> for the wrong party. I really thought that this was a game that had the potential of going either way, having seen Bayern win a lot of these sort of quote-unquote title decider kinds of games in the past several years. But I really shouldn't have worried. Leverkusen, they've been the best team all season. They showed why they're still the best team all season. They just came out and manhandled Bayern. The 3-0 result, I think, might have even undersold 
the level of dominance in this game, despite the fact that the third goal was kind of a, you know, injury time, fast break throwaway. I think that this was as dominant a performance against Bayern as I've seen in quite some time. There was a small-ish debate on social media about precisely that and people asking the question, when was the last time Bayern had been dominated in a game you know, by a title challenger? I mean, you know, notwithstanding you know, the occasional foray at Mönchengladbach, but against the title challenger. And people, I think, had to go back to Wolfsburg 2009 this is the last time that Bayern got such a shellacking from yeah, a, the the Grafitch backheel game. The Grafitch backheel, yeah, absolutely. What a goal that was, and what a game that was. What a performance by Wolfsburg. I think you do. I mean, I think slightly out of context there, and as Dortmund guy, I feel obliged to point out the DFB Pokal final in 2012. Not a league game though, so it doesn't qualify really. But you know, Kagawa and Lewandowski and all of that. But I mean, really, you know, this is where we are. I mean, it's been a long time since we've seen Bayern so comfortably beaten by a title rival. And I think it's super impressive how the Leverkusen players just dealt with and managed that pressure. You know, I guess because we're so used to Dortmund being the de facto challenger and because we're so used to Dortmund in a lot of occasions just simply not turning up for this fixture, maybe there was a kind of expectation that Leverkusen would be the same and they were absolutely not. And it was as comprehensive. You know, I got to about halfway through the second half and thought, there's no way. I don't see Bayern turning this around. I mean, I don't know, football is a crazy game. Crazy things would happen. But, you know, this would have to be chaos. Chaos would have to ensue for Bayern to turn this around. I can't see them doing this just simply off their own bat. I mean, Felix Fire just has to go on a mad one or something like that. You know, it would take external factors for, for Bayern to turn that around. And they'd lost control of the game and lost control of the narrative of the game, which is amazing and rare. And, with the, you know, with apologies to any Bayern fans listening to this, it was... A wonderful thing to witness. Yep, yep. You know, I, I feel like we have to make these sorts of apologies to Bayern fans because as Bundesliga fans, this has been a long, long 11-year period of dominance by a team who has, in most cases, been well worth that dominance. I don't want to take that away from them. They've been both a very good team and a very exciting team over that stretch, but I think we can all admit that it's time for that to wrap up. And I I really hope that this five-point gap that Leverkusen have managed to open up is one that they can maintain. You mentioned this idea of, you know, Bayern being dominated in a way that has really not been seen in quite some time. There's been some statistics floating around I thought might be interesting for us to take a look at them. Bayern had just one shot on frame the entire game out of, you know, only nine shots total. That was the fourth time in the last decade that Bayern have had less than 10 total shots in a game. And I think two of those, two of those games in which they had fewer than 10 shots happened in a single season of 2014-2015. And this is the first time since 1995, according to Kicker, that they failed to record a single noteworthy goal-scoring chance. It's not entirely clear to me what Kicker's metric is in terms of like, what's a tour chance and what's not. I mean, you know, putting a shot on goal, you know, no matter how sort of half-assed it is, I guess in some cases would have to be called a goal-scoring chance, but at least in their minds, it didn't. So there's some fuzziness there, but I think that in that Kicker is Kicker and they kind of know what they're talking about for the most part. 
I think it's fair to say that this is one of their most anemic attacking performances in 30 years. Thinking back to the way the game was played, oddly enough, I mean, Bayern were definitely allowed to have the ball. They had more than 60% of possession. They, you know, pushed the ball all around. They just weren't able to do anything with it of very much note. What, in your mind, either was Leverkusen doing to make that happen, or what was going wrong with Bayern's sort of attacking approach? I mean, they were basically healthy up front. I thought that Leverkusen's commitment to each other was the key factor here. I mean, obviously, Xabi Alonso has to take some credit for the way in which the, he switched the formations. I think Thomas Tuchel, I was reading Raphael Honigstein's right up in The Athletic, and how Xabi Alonso made a change in formation. Not at the last minute, but really without Tuchel knowing. And Tuchel also made a change in formation mm-hmm. to anticipate Xabi Alonso. which Exactly. I mean, he is, tried to mirror Xabi Alonso's formation, which he didn't play. But this is not how Bayern historically and traditionally do things. Traditionally, Bayern say, this is how we play and it's up to you to beat us. It's not for us to figure you out. It's for you to figure us out. And that's what's got them where they are. So that in itself is an interesting backstory to this. But the level of commitment that the defenders showed to each other was structurally, obviously, they were very, very sound, tactically sound, but also they helped each other, they worked for each other. There was always an extra guy in the defensive positions to be able to clean up any kind of potential error or a missed tackle or a missed interception. It just seemed to have it all going on in, in that area and build that foundation for them to go ahead and score the goals to win the game. And I just think that it was that clarity of purpose that they had and just illustrates what we know to be true, but occasionally do need to be reminded of it. And that is that football is the ultimate team game. I mean, I would maybe suggest this is contentious, but I don't think too many people would say it was controversial to say that player for player buying are probably a better side. But like 11 against 11, a team for team, you know, it was night and day. I mean, Bayern Leverkusen were clearly the better team. And it also underlined, and it's important to not look back with with distance. There's still plenty of football to be played and plenty of time for Bayern to turn this around. But it underlined just how good Bayern have been in the last 11 years. It's one thing to have the best players, but it's another to get them going so well, so consistently over so many years to be able to see off all comers and all challenges and in a lot of cases reduce them to tears and rubble. You know, And it goes to show you just how important it is to get that and just how good Bayern have been up to the last couple of seasons where it's kind of not exactly fallen apart. That's a massive exaggeration. They literally won the Bundesliga last season. And they may well win the Bundesliga this season. But this was an example of a game where you could see a visible decline in Bayern Munich. And I think because they got Kane in and he scored an awful lot of goals and you're feeling that maybe that was, you wondered whether or not that was papering over the cracks. And this is a genuine evidence that that appears to be the case. Yeah, it feels like this team last year, certainly with the absence of Robert Lewandowski and this sort of, you know, striker by committee sort of plan that they pursued for most of that time to make up for that. And this year sort of not like for like, but at least they have a sort of talismanic striker who they can count on to score, you know, a goal every game and a half at least. Kind of restored a certain type of order. But just looking at the lineup, looking at the squad, looking at the way that this team played in this particular game, they don't have 
the kind of rock solid, we know exactly who's going to be slotted into which place spine. They don't really have a lot of players who sort of have played together for a lot of years. It all kind of feels pieced together. I mean, it's a very high quality jigsaw puzzle, but I'm not sure if all the pieces have yet sort of fallen into place in the way that we are used to from a Bayern Munich side. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, for example, Min Jae Kim's a fantastic player for Napoli. No reason why that wouldn't be an outstanding signing. And on another season, that would have been an outstanding signing, but maybe not quite slotted in. Had to go after the Asia Cup as well, of course. Not helping Leon Goretzka. Perhaps some question marks about not his form, I would suggest, but perhaps his role in the side. And questions about Joshua Kimmich as well, which is odd because he's an outstanding footballer. But question marks there also because you feel that Thomas Tuchel wants to play with a like orthodox holding midfielder, defensive midfielder, tried to sign one in the summer, couldn't do it. And you're wondering whether or not this is then having a knock-on effect on the way he's setting up the team as well. So, you know, some maybe some question marks there. Well, I was also interested in the fact that the changes he made, I think some of them were induced by, you know, either injuries or absences. So it's not exactly these are all free choices to make. But we did not see Joshua Kimmich or Thomas Müller start this game. We did see a couple of guys like, you know, Sasha Boe and Eric Dyer, who have not been with the team for more than a few weeks in both cases, being given pretty big responsibilities in this game against probably Bayern's most challenging domestic opponent of the year. And they weren't that great. No. And I was going to suggest actually, you know, that perhaps the fact that Thomas Muller is moving into, dare I say, the twilight of his career, perhaps yeah, he's, he's not... Emeritus status. Yeah. No longer as effective as he was. And I thought that it was interesting that, you know, he had to front up to the German media immediately after the game and was pretty impassioned and pretty angry. And and you can understand why that would be. And I know one questions his quality and commitment, but yeah, I mean, you would perhaps have thought, you know, Bayern might be struggling a bit with, you know, how to transition away from some of their more established players who are no longer as established. And Tuchel himself, you know, an interesting coach, very, very effective, but the kind of coach who... It doesn't always necessarily settle in at clubs and you do wonder what was going on there. But of course, I think that so much of this is really about Leverkusen who have just been relentless this season and continue to be relentless. They have just not taken their foot off the gas and there's only been a number of occasions. I've not seen every minute of them, but they've cut it fine on a couple of occasions, recently against Augsburg, for example. But you know, they're determined, they committed, they don't quit till the absolute final whistle and it's paying off for them. And when you consider that they've been through a fairly emotional cup game only a few days earlier, this was an extraordinary, extraordinary development. I'd just love to, as an Englishman, just to, you know, we talked about Harry Kane. Can we just, you know, Nathan Teller, you know, in the championship at Burnley last season, started this season in the championship at Southampton. And, you know, not remotely out of place. I mean, I think we might be talking about strikers getting selected for their national teams. And I kind of wonder whether or not Gareth Southgate was watching that game, at least on the television, perhaps with a view to having a look at Harry Kane, but thinking, blimey. 
When's the last time an England manager watched a Bundesliga game, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't believe that any England managers ever watched a Bundesliga game now that you mention it. Prior to that, it was all right. They didn't have to. It's only recently. I know. I, well, I think they'd probably have to start by putting these games on television in England. Then we could talk. To be fair, this game was on, on and it was up against Newcastle v Forest. So not what you'd call a top spiel in the UK. And there was a big amount of chatter on it on the socials on this game amongst the kind of people who usually watch English football, that is to say. So I think it might have broken through this fixture over here in Blighty because for obvious reasons, because obviously Harry Kane is a big name and, and the narrative, the Spursy narrative, it seems to have appealed to people because obviously Harry Kane's specifically gone to Bayern to win trophies. And he may well do. This season is not over. It's literally only February. But my goodness, it's going to be a difficult for them. They'll have earned it or Leverkusen would have blown it if Bayern end up winning this title. Yep, yep. At least over here in the United States, I think ESPN, the broadcaster for the Bundesliga, probably devoted a little bit more energy to Real Madrid versus Girona, just because for, for linguistic reasons, I think that La Liga does a lot better over here than the Bundesliga. But I, I thought they did a, a pretty nice job nonetheless. And, you know, the extraordinary Archie Rintut, friend of the show, alumni of the show, did a lovely job as always. I wish we had ESPN coverage over here. We have Sky Sports who use the in-house commentary team managed by, you know, Talking Football co-founder John Hartley, it should be said. So a great team of guys. But that after match coverage just is completely lacking over here. We just don't get it. And I envy the US. Interestingly, the Real madrid Girona match was free to air here in the UK. But I actually, also, I, so I suspect that more people would have watched it because it, by didn't the fact that it was free to air. But I feel that this was the game that cut through a little bit more. And as we know, well, if you don't know, Real won that game. Comfortably. Comfortably. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps even more comfortably than Leverkusen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> all right. Let's leave all talk of the big one behind and take a short break and then come back and talk about a few other things. All right, here is part two of Talking Foosball. I'm Matt Herman. I'm here with Terry DeFellin. On the last episode of Talking Foosball, not the one that we two gents were on, but the Aufstieg edition, which was put out late last week, Nick and Mike told you all about the small projectile-filled wave of protests that struck the second division last weekend, the most notable one being the more than half an hour delay at the uh, Hertha Haas foul game. Certainly, back in force in the top flight this weekend on match day 21. Almost every single game of the weekend had some sort of delay caused largely by fans throwing stuff onto the pitch for fairly protracted periods. Once again, Berlin leading the way. The Union game had a very long delay in it. The substance of these protests, in as much as the ultras who have been leading them have been able to explain or, you know, have sort of shown on the signs that they, you know, post during them, is that the proliferation of strategic partners or, or investors, whether that be in clubs or more pertinently to the momentary debate that's going on or seems to still be going on, is the league. You know, the German Football League 
as we addressed in some other previous episodes, has sold or has, has reached an agreement anyway to sell a portion of their media rights to outside investors in exchange basically for help in international marketing, in sort of broadcast rights negotiations. And the idea is that this can somehow, quote unquote, close the gap between the Bundesliga and the likes of the Premier League and perhaps the, you know, La Liga and other leagues that seem to be doing a bit better with their global marketing strategy. What precisely the protest is going against in terms of what the concrete outcome of this investment wave to come is sort of not entirely clear, but the opinions of these most hardcore fans, these ultras, seems to be very, very dead set against it. And the vote that took place among the top two divisions of German football teams, the teams that constitute the German Football League system, was sufficiently close to where relitigating this or revoting on this doesn't seem to be something that's really out of the question or particularly unfair. However, <laughs> when you are causing delays in top flight football matches, which are subject to both television broadcast windows, are subject to the sort of fitness of the participants being, you know, sort of in some cases totally taken out of rhythm or out of being, you know, fully warmed in like a muscular sense. There are certain problems that come along with this expression. What is your take, Terry, on how sort of legitimate both the message of the protest and the means of the protest is, and what can we really expect out of either continued protests or a sort of a turnaround from the league, or at least some sort of, it seemed to me like a lot of the the, the commentary teams this weekend were definitely reading off of a, a set of talking points about you know the league's willingness to engage in renewed dialogue around this issue as a means of letting these folks know that like, Please, please could you knock this off? We're willing to talk. Yeah, it was interesting during the Dortmund game. I think it was Kevin Hatchard, again, friend of the show and former guest on the show. For sure. We've got some heritage here, haven't we? He was uh, said precisely that uh, twice during the course of the protest. And it was clearly reading from a statement and absolutely fine, all power to him. They are effectively working for the DFL. You would expect them to uh, you know, take what I thought was a, is a, you know, probably the only position that they could take. In terms of the purpose of them, I mean, obviously, I think the concern that I'm reading from them is that the investment companies that are likely to become involved have questionable ethics, other investments in other areas of life that are deeply questionable, and that football should not really be involved in. I have strong views about this myself. My feeling is, is that football is an extremely important and valuable part of community life and civic life and should as much as possible not be bogged down with unpleasant people with questionable ethics, with questionable practices, and who do deals with unpleasant people. Now, I acknowledge that, you know, we live in a world where it might be necessary for us on a certain level to have to do that. I don't like it, but I acknowledge that there's an element of economic life where we might have to do deals with nasty people. But our civic life is really what makes all that shit worth living. And if that in itself becomes toxified, then it, it erodes all of us. It's, it's more important than just football. It's an important cultural institution that can erode our civic life and our society. And I think it's right to be opposed to it. 
and I think it's right to protest it. That, that is my view. As opposed to whether or not it is an effective form of process, that, well, that remains to be seen. I think it's a, it's a clever way of doing it in so far as you know, it's attacking television, <laughs> which, of course, is part of the issue. The reason why, you said yourself, Matt, the reason why this whole thing is happening is to try and boost television revenues. But if you reduce the television spectacle to a, you know, a bunch of chocolate coins and sweets and tennis balls being chucked onto the pitch and the games being delayed and, and broadcast windows being messed around with, that's costing money, it's costing the broadcasters money and it's making it less of a spectacle and less of an attraction. And it may well then in turn force the DFL to then go back and say, we need to have a rethink about this. And so I think that there's a possibility that this could actually work, that they have that kind of power. It's peaceful. It's disruptive on one level. As someone who sits on his backside on a Sunday afternoon and watches the telly, it's irritating, I guess. But I think it's a super effective way of doing things. And I don't think that they should stop. No, no, I, I think that they have every right to keep going until they get a real dialogue with the club bosses, which they really didn't get last time around. I was interested in particular, because at least the beginnings of this wave of protests, certainly last week in the second division, the one notably we saw in Berlin, most of this was happening you know, from the ultras in like the sort of the quote unquote fan block areas. It happened to be the Oskurva in, in the Olympia Stadium, but you see it in the, the fan blocks whatever stadium you're in. And it seemed to be organized by the folks who, you know, definitely see themselves as being representatives of the wider fan community in Germany. But, you know, anybody who's watched German football long enough knows that there's also pretty serious fissures and fractures between the wider fan population and ultras. I mean, sometimes you get it over, you know, pyrotechnics. Sometimes you get it over, you know, some of the attitudes that ultras share towards either other teams or to various social trends or movements, which can seem a bit, you know, backward or, or outmoded in some clubs case. I don't buy the idea that ultras always represent the interests of the average fan. They have their own agenda. But I was very interested to see, for example, at the Leverkusen-Bayern Munich game, which didn't have terribly significant delays, I think in main part because the fans of Leverkusen understood what was at stake there. But interestingly, what was thrown on the field in Leverkusen was not really coming just from the fan block and from the ultras. It was coming from all sides. There were fans all over that ground. Granted, it was Carnival. So everybody had candy in their pockets. So everyone had something to throw. But there was stuff being thrown on the pitch from, you know, both ends, from the sidelines, from the lower decks. It seemed like there were a lot of people who wanted to take some small part in this statement of, hey, guys, let's rethink this. And I thought that was an interesting development, that it seemed at that point on at least a very small and whatever level, that this is not just an ultras thing. This is turning into something that like actual average fans are buying into, at least in some degree. Yeah, and obviously the fan groups have been displaying banners as well that have been quite long banners explaining their position. Sometimes the camera doesn't show them long enough for me to read them. I'm like, well, yeah, it's like four long banners and they'll have like some like long ass German <laughs> compound words. I'm like, what? stop, press pause. Um, but for example, I mean, the Dortmund Ultras published a statement last week explaining their position 
in more detail. Things like that, I think, are hopefully helpful because it does then provide additional context. What I thought was noticeable, I didn't see at the um, Westfalen, I didn't see any participation from fans outside of the yellow wall, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that it perhaps wasn't picked up on the cameras. But what I didn't see was, you know, booing or any kind of visible or audible objections from other fans. I'm not suggesting that there weren't objections, but I didn't sort of like hear anything that was particularly coordinated or anything particularly loud. Similarly in Stuttgart, I watched the Stuttgart-Mainz game and that was disrupted as well. In fact, they had to come off the pitch for a short while during the first half of that game. And I didn't really see anything. I didn't necessarily see any actively participating from the outside of the fan blocks, but I didn't necessarily see any objections. So I do wonder whether or not there is perhaps a feeling that you know, the the fans at the very least have the right to protest and should be heard. But I don't know, I, this is just watching through a television. I think you'd have to be there really to get an idea of that. But it would be really interesting to see what the general and overall fan sentiment is for the match going public and whether or not they are in favour of this. But presumably, and I say this presumably with emphasis, you know, if in some instances, Casey, for ultra groups were confronted with the fact that the greater body of you know, your average fan felt that this was unnecessary, it was disruptive, it was ineffective, or they just didn't agree with it, then they might change their their position. But I, I don't know, I might be uh, ascribing too much uh, democratic acumen to those groups. But but I, I would like to think that that will be the case. But I don't know, we shall see. Yeah, yeah, this will be a story that I think develops over the next several weeks, because I think it could turn into something of a game of chicken. I mean, I think if fans outside of the you know ultra blocks get tired of this they will eventually make their voices heard they aren't particularly tired of it just yet i think there's also a waiting game to see what sort of meaningful dialogue the clubs are willing to engage in how how many weeks they're willing to allow their broadcast windows to be disrupted in a significant way uh because i don't see it stopping anytime soon right away let's turn away let's start talking about foosball on the pitch. Again, you mentioned a couple of games, which I think were significant from the weekend. I mean, we saw one versus two. Teams three and four were both in action. You know, Dortmund on Friday night, they were 3-0 winners against SC Freiburg. And as you said, Stuttgart, they were also playing on the weekend. They took Mainz apart, a 3-1 result there. Neither one of those results were terribly surprising in the outcome of, you know, who won. But I thought in both cases... Stuttgart now in third, Dortmund now in fourth, were well worth their victories and kind of showed that this is going to be, you know, perhaps those two teams and to a lesser extent Leipzig who, you know, are in with a shout to catch Dortmund if Dortmund have a dip. That's going to be an interesting race for third, fourth and fifth place to see how things shake out for the Champions League places in the Bundesliga. Where do you see, Let's we can start with, I guess, Dortmund, because you pay a little bit of extra attention to that team, right? Uh, yeah, a little bit of extra attention, sure. Um, I, I, yeah, I think that obviously the Heidenheim result probably got hearts fluttering again. And uh-huh. But I mean, I, it was a decent and convincing performance against Freiburg. Um, and I mean, they're still unbeaten since the winter break. And, you know, they look like they have some kind of plan. Ian Martson, I think, is a fantastic signing. I think possibly more effective, maybe, than Jaden Sancho with the mile high-profile one, dare I say it, I think. I think largely that's because Martson has been playing and Sancho has not. 
But Matson like is like my God. This is what a fullback looks like. <laughs> um, it's it's extraordinary, and it is amazing just how much these. I mean, I know Rielsen has his critics, but I like Rielsen as a fullback. Sometimes you have to remind yourself how important you know good fullbacks, good solid fullbacks, really are in a team. And they do appear to have come past that kind of crisis point that they had just before the winter break. And so, I mean, they always beat Freiburg at home, so we, we shall see. But it, it's certainly encouraging signs for Dortmund that we have you know a contest for those top four slots championship obviously completely out of the question Stuttgart Gerasi on the bench having come back from AFCON but you know doesn't really appear to have been missed that much in his absence they looked very good against a well-organized but ultimately disengaged Mainz team I worry about that Mainz team that the quality of the defending for those goals was just almost non-existence. Their heart just doesn't appear to be in it in those players. We talked about the level of commitment of Leverkusen when they were defending against Bayern. Total, total opposite for Mainz against Stuttgart. But for all of that, Stuttgart did what good teams do and that's put bad teams to the sword, which they did. And they were a bit unlucky, I think, to concede a late goal. The Dahoud effect, I think. Dahoud comes on the pitch and they concede a goal. It's so what happens when you go to Brighton, Moments? What happens when you go to Brighton? And uh, <laughs> I know, and I just you know special mention for Dennis Undav, who I think is being mentioned in dispatches about a possible call up to the national team. That's quite a story for that lad. To be fair, he also played for Brighton, but. <laughs> But he seems to have come out the other side of it. Okay. And yeah, I mean, obviously he's he's had a long journey up to the top and it's great to see him. And he took his goal really, really nicely. And it was a really good performance by Stuttgart. Yep. Second goal in as many games for uh, Maxi Mittelstedt I know. as well. That's an interesting outside shot for Germany because right? he's been he's been excellent for Stuttgart this year. And he was always a player that, you know, me knowing him as a Hertha player, he always kind of felt like, he was never going to fully bloom. And uh, all it took was to move to an actually good team. And uh, it turns out he is quite good. But it is uh, remarkable, isn't it, Stuttgart, given that, I mean, because they're not that much different to what they were last year, right? I mean, there's not been that many changes. It's just, well, it's just a coach. Is it the coach? What is it? Why has Stuttgart suddenly that much better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a question that maybe we should take a little bit more uh, depth and time to answer. But I agree that this is this is going to be an interesting race between them and Dortmund, especially if you know. Yeah, you mentioned Zeru Gerasi coming back from Afcon and him not being particularly missed. I think you know Dennis Undav and his exploits in the uh, intervening time have done a lot for that. If those two guys can both stay hot. This is going to be a very tough team to catch and a team that, you know, not only is going to be a tough team to catch, but will be a lot of fun to watch in the coming years if they can manage to hold on to either of those guys, which is a whole nother question entirely. I think Undav has got a more of a chance of staying because of his age, mind you. Sure. Yeah. Says that mm-hmm. Gurasi is is yeah. You know, they're both like twenty seven, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So they're at their prime. So you would think that they would want to get on that bandwagon. I, I think there was strong talk that Gurasi would be gone in the winter transfer window. But oh yeah, I'm yeah. surprised he, he didn't get sold. And I don't think I mean you know at, at his stage in his career. I mean he is a a, a first division player, a Bundesliga player. He'll be on good wages, you know, by comparison to the rest of us. But considering the riches that are available for hotshot goal scorers in European leagues, 
I bet there's more money that he could be earning and no one I think would really hold it against him. No one outside of Stuttgart would hold it against him if he was to seek out uh, fortunes elsewhere. Same applies to Undav. You just wonder whether or not there's just a special source going on there in this moment at Stuttgart and that if those guys leave, that they might not take that form with them. But you never know. Yeah, and Undav, I mean, given that he is, as we said, just he's 27 and this is literally his first Erste Bundesliga season, despite being, you know... German and having played his entire youth and early professional career in Germany, it it just feels to me like it probably feels spectacular for him to be playing this well in his first top flight German season. So, all right, that is all for this edition of Talking Foosball. Great to be back with you, Terry, after uh, two weeks. Two of the longest weeks, absolutely, and another two weeks before we meet again. Matt, but who knows where we'll be in two weeks' time. <laughs> We're just keeping an open mind. The, the routines of our lives will take a, some sort of profound turn <laughs> over the next fortnight. Which they won't. <laughs> Many thanks to our producer, Aiden Rantoul. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all. 